Turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're turning the page in our study on what happens when you first trust in Jesus as your Savior. So much of the preaching of the gospel is and must be that we who are dead in our sins need to trust in Christ who died for our sins so that we can enjoy eternal life and not any longer be dead, separated from God in our sins. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus died for the sins of the world. And it's why this offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ in the gospel is necessary for all people to receive. Because as Paul said, the, the Jewish rabbi, uh, of, who was also a Roman citizen, that great philosopher of the New Testament and systematic theologian said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we preach Christ to sinners Who's a sinner? All of us are sinners. Who needs Christ? All of us need Christ. This is the universal call of the gospel of God's grace and love to we despite our sin. We bring sin and need. God brings the son and salvation. And what we do about that is trust alone in him. That's the gospel. And so much of our preaching must be the gospel. But believers, There isn't a lot of preaching and teaching for the body of Christ, for those who believe in Christ, about what happened when you did believe. But there's a lot of New Testament revelation about this. A lot of what the Bible says about you who are believers. And my challenge to you is if you haven't trusted in Christ, this is step one. This is square one to receive eternal life simply by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only Savior, your only salvation, as the only uh, Savior from our sins. But as we move to the message this morning in 1 Corinthians 2, I want to talk about the blessings that we have associated with our new birth. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And he was talking about what happens, what God does by his grace and his sovereign will and his great plan from eternity past, what he does when you first trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And one of the things is you receive what Jesus calls the new birth or being born again or born from above. And we want to emphasize this concept of birth because it cannot be undone. You cannot, having been born, no longer be born. You, in a, in a, after the flesh with your family, you can be disowned, be kicked out of your house from parents' house, can be a fool like the, the man who goes to a far country in Luke 15, the prodigal, and you can act like you don't have a family and divorce yourself from uh, your f- family association. Some of you have had to do that after the flesh, but you can't not be born to your mom and dad. It just is what it is, and it's a very compelling fact, very compelling that we have these human beings that God used to bring us forth into this world, into our existence. God calls for us to honor them because of that fact that he used them to make us. So it calls for honor of our parents. But you can't be unborn. And that's a vital piece of the package of your security in Christ. There are many things that are true because of your new birth, and one of them is that you have a new spirit. You have a new spirit. The immaterial inner part of you has been regenerated, reborn, and it is 
of God. And it belongs to God, it is from God, and it is for God. And this is obviously something that will change our lives if we internalize it. Here's why. If the new inner me, when I trusted in Christ, if God made me new in this new spirit, if that's true, and that truly who I am is now about him, then my entire life, my decisions, my relationships, everything comes under his interests because I'm his. He made me new with this new life, with this new spirit. There are many things we could talk about, uh, regeneration or the new birth. You're born again, you're sons of God, you're a new creation, you're adopted, you're possessors of eternal life, but you have this new spirit. It isn't talked about uh, perhaps as often as it should be, and it is a difficult concept to grab in the Bible for one especially clear reason, because the word spirit has five or six different possible meanings in the New Testament. Greek, pneuma can mean spirit, the Holy Spirit, your human spirit, your breath, Wind, the general attitude of the people in the time in which you live, and the Germans called it Zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, the, therefore the worldview that people have. It can mean all these things, and depending on how the author uses it, that, that's, that's the way it works. And so there's some nuance about this. There's also the challenge that God has given you his Holy Spirit to abide in your heart forever. The third person of the Trinity, the one in Genesis 1-2 who's hovering over the surface of the deep in creation, has come to live in you forever. I heard once, someone once misunderstand uh, John 7 and say, well, the Holy Spirit didn't exist yet until Jesus came and then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit because they don't know that the Holy Spirit of Pentecost that came on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD is the same person of the Godhead, the same third person of the Trinity who is present in creation in Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit that inspired Moses to write everything Moses wrote. He's the same one that empowered Bezalel to build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. He's the same spirit that David said, God, despite my sin, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has come to abide in you in a special way. And it is difficult at times in the scriptures to discern whether the Bible's talking about the Holy Spirit in me as a church age believer, or whether it's talking about my new spirit from God. And we're going to look at the passage par excellence that demonstrates this challenge. There are really two places. One is in 1 Corinthians 2 and the other is in Jude 19. And in Jude 19, what chapter? Well, there's only one chapter, so it's just Jude verse 19. But let's look at this, the possessors of a new spirit in 1 Corinthians 2. Let's, it's really the chunk that we're going to look at today is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3, 4. I will get more done by saying less. I know this, although I want to say everything at uh, uh, 1.5 times Shapiro speed. I want to speak fast. I'm excited. I talk faster when I get excited. Sometimes when you hear me teach, I know that what you get is he's enthusiastic about it, (laughs) but I can't track what's going on. Well, one thing that helps to slow down is outlining. We have a big chunk of scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3, 4, one thought. And it breaks down into four pieces. And the first five verses are the context. The context for the discussion he's going to make, where in the middle he says, you have the spirit from God. The context is there is a problem in Corinth. There's a problem in this Greek metropolis 
this den of corruption, the Las Vegas of the um, Old Testament, and I mean in the sense of permissiveness and morality, we actually have people from Las Vegas. I don't mean uh, <laughs> the suburbs. I mean Las Vegas means Sin City. It means that people uh, do what they feel like, and what, goes, what's, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Um, it's, it's that way. That's what Corinth is in the, Old Te- in the, in the uh, biblical world. And, um, for example, there's a temple that everyone visits called the Temple of Aphrodite. And everyone knows that Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love. And Aphrodite has a little buddy named Eros. And um, uh, what happens in the Temple of Aphrodite is it's basically a brothel. And it's socially acceptable to visit such a place because, after all, this is Corinth. And uh, that's what we do. This is how we are Corinthians. In fact, to be a Corinthian... And the world in which Paul wrote in the first century A.D. to be a Corinthian is to be synonymous with fornication. That's what it means to Corinthiao, to commit the, the act of Corinthianism. And so it's just, it's good to know this as the context. There is so much doctrine that comes out of first and second Corinthians and both epistles, the both letters by Paul were written to correct them, their misunderstandings, their misapprehensions. And what's happened, and as you open the letter, the main reason for him writing it is that they have misunderstood what Paul is as an apostle of Jesus Christ. They have tried to evaluate him as an orator. They've tried to see if he's a good enough speaker to hold their attention. I don't really like that he doesn't tell many stories when he teaches, for example. I don't know about his rhetorical flourish. He doesn't pause on his words so we can chew them with our ears. You know, that, he's, not, he's not an orator. He's not trained in rhetoric. And his purpose isn't by his emotional appeals or his careful crafted language to win you over to buy his laundry soap. That's not his job. He's here with the gospel of Jesus Christ as one who's actually been given this message, and he's here to teach it. And so, um, so that's the problem is they've rejected Paul because he can't have wisdom. He doesn't have style in 1 Corinthians In verses 6 through 13, Paul brings the correction where he tells them we have the spirit from God. The correction in 2, 6 through 13 is that Paul's message is wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of the world that comes from style and flair and panache or whatever it is that tickles your ears. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is God telling us how it is and us responding appropriately to our creator. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is that God is, and therefore my life matters eternally, not just temporally, but eternally, because an eternal being is making an assessment. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of God. And so Paul's message is wisdom, and and that of the apostles. And then you have a contrast with them. In verses 14 through 16, you have two kinds of people described. The natural, sukikos, or soulish man, the man characterized by soul, and the pneumatikos, the spiritual man. And probably the toughest thing to interpret in this difficult passage is verses 14 through 16. What is it like to be a soulish man that's an unbeliever, a non-believer, someone that doesn't have the spirit that is from God versus a spiritual man, someone characterized by spirit, by the spirit of God, by the things of God. That's the contrast, the natural unbeliever, the spiritual believer. And this is the hard thing about first Corinthians. They're not acting or they're not functioning as spiritual believers. They're carnal believers. They're believers, they're saints in first Corinthians one, but they're acting like unbelievers in three, one through four. 
Three, one through four is the conviction that he intends to bring to them in their carnality. The Corinthians are fleshly or carnal. They're acting according to the flesh as opposed to the spirit. And so they're acting like sukikos, like natural men, like mere men. Now, does anybody just from interest or Bible knowledge, anybody know what the topic is that is surfacing their carnality? They're acting after the flesh or the sinful nature. How are they acting as just mere men without the spirit of God? How are they acting as carnal, as just characterized by flesh? There's a problem that Paul writes to that is like the symptom. And he's diving down deep into the solution which is a spiritual solution. But what's the symptom? Do you know what the problem is in Corinth? They're squabbling in the body of Christ. They're not preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. They're squabbling and dividing. There is division in the house over what? Do you know what they're dividing over? Who they like to teach them. They're making a division in the body of Christ in Corinth over who is their preferred teacher. That's it. And that is the carnality. That is the demonstration of your acting like unbelievers because you're worried about what human is delivering the word of God to you. You're not focused on Christ and his agenda. You're not mature enough in the word from whichever teacher to focus on Christ and be about his work. You're worried and squabbling and dividing over who baptized you. And it's, un, it's acting like unbelievers. This happens in the body of Christ. It happens in the church. The shocker to me is to see someone teach through this over months and months and not say that's the problem, but it is absolutely what he's talking about. I'm of a Paul and I'm of a Paul's, but I'm of Jesus, meaning the ministry in which I was baptized becoming an issue. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, I'm glad I didn't baptize anyone. Well, except Stephanus and I don't know who else, but and, and others have taken that to mean we're not supposed to baptize now because Paul tells the Corinthians, I'm glad I didn't baptize you because you make a division over it. They're going to cancel what Jesus says about baptism because they misunderstand what Paul is saying in correction and repudiation of the Corinthians. All right, so, oh man, this is a convicting passage. This is a message of this shouldn't be this way. Are we sure we want to drive into this? Do we really want to get into the spiritual versus the carnal? Versus the, the soulish man. Do I really want to get into this concept and think this through? Yes, you do. And I want to challenge you in two ways. If this sticks, if you're a carnal believer, stop it. <laughs> get back in fellowship with God and walk by the Spirit according to the Word. And let me tell you, you can't do it by what the world says. You have to go by what God's Word says. You'll be just after the flesh and just like mere men if you get your doctrine from the world. If you get it from God, from his word, you'll be radical to the world. And just like Paul, they'll say, you've lost your mind. And that's okay. We'll be crazy, Paul says, for God's sake. He says that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. If the world thinks I'm foolish, that's fine. God is going to use the, the foolishness that he's put in me to criticize, to judge the, the wisdom of the world. And there is a fight. It is a spiritual battle. My first challenge to you is if you're a carnal believer, you need to stop it. And as we go through this, my second challenge to you is if you see it and you're like, generally, I'm trying to walk according to the word. I'm seeking to, to internalize what God has said and live it out. Then rejoice, rejoice, because this is what life is really about. In either case, we should all leave here rejoicing. We have the spirit, which is from God. New American Standard says, Something. What does it say?
I know what it says. Verse by verse, it says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, but rather proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't come like a, a, flourished, a flourishing, um, uh, polished speaker. I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't wrap the infinitely valuable thing. I just gave it to you, is, the, is what he's saying. Nothing wrong with wrapping, but it's not the thing. The wrapping paper. What beautiful wrapping paper. Ever open a gift that didn't have a gift in it? Beautifully boxed. Someone's a prankster, and it was all wrapped up in gold and silver and, and, uh, and, and red with that gold. Just set it off, and they curled up the, the ribbons, and it's all curled up. And, and it's beautiful, and you're like, what's in it? Not much. What's in it? And you're like, oh, it must be something like a solid-state device. It's lightweight, or maybe it's, maybe it's a check. Maybe it's, maybe it's money. Maybe it's not coal. What might this be? And you open it up, and they're pranking you, and there's nothing in it. But boy, was that some pretty packaging. Paul says, I didn't come with packaging. I came with the actual thing. I came with the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The knowledge that I bring is the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God that is the revelation that I've been given as an apostle, one sent by Jesus himself. Remember, the apostle Paul is not a standalone guy. He's an apostle, one sent by Jesus Christ. He's coming with the word of Jesus, and we care at all what he said because he's an apostle of Christ. We're Christians. We believe in Jesus, and therefore those that he sent, we listen carefully to them because they have the prophetic word of God. I was with you, remember, in weakness and fear and much trembling when he had ministry with them. They saw him not as some know-it-all that has it all solved, but somebody that has had trouble and endures trouble and is subject to the challenges of this life. And they saw that in him. And those Corinthians, those fools, those, those fools who had Paul teach them said, well, you know, I mean, not really that impressive. Now, of course, I called my brothers in Christ fools, and you just heard in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, I got some problems. But do I not do this also when God is speaking and I don't listen? Paul was there to teach, the apostle Paul. We spend our lives reading 13 letters from Paul and juicing everything we can get from them. Ask me anything, he says. I'm here with you. They, they lived with him, they worked with him, they talked to him. I can't wait to experience this, but I can't decide of absent from the body and present with the Lord when I die. I, then I can maybe talk to Paul. I know I'll be present with the Lord. In the resurrection, I'm sure I'll be able to talk to him. Probably a line. There's probably a lot, of, a lot of, uh, of, of interest in talking to the Apostle Paul. But these Corinthians had him. When I say these fools, I, I just mean, would I have been this way back then if, if I had Paul to teach me? Would I have been like, eh, it's not that important. Because that's what they're doing. And I just want to dramatize that for you. This is a horrible um, mistake they've made. Have you ever had regrets? Of course you have. Like that tattoo that says, no regrets. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Maybe you ought to work regret into things beforehand before we make these kinds of typos and stuff. Yeah, we have regrets. Well, this is one of my great regrets in the body of Christ is that the Corinthian believers did not know what they had. And they just disregarded him. Two letters for Paul about this disregarding. In my message and my preaching, we're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul came with miracles. 
in his ministry. He came with validations of the message. And this is what miracles always did, whether it was Moses or Elijah or Elisha or Jesus or Paul. It was always a validation. It was always a demonstration of the big miracle. And here's the big miracle. God has spoken. And you can know him despite your limitations, your sin, that you have an infinite being and you're a finite creature. How can I understand anything of him? God has spoken and you can know him. And here's what God offers through his son, the word who became flesh. He offers you alone through Jesus Christ, the life. And you can have the life, which is to know God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's what eternal life is, according to Jesus. And so he brought this message validated with these miracles. I know we're all excited about the flashy. Show me the, the healing. Show me the, the, the sign gift. Well, the sign was that the word was from God, and the big miracle is the resurrection. And if you have Christ, you are headed to the resurrection unto life. And your biggest problem is already solved. And that's partly what we're studying in the riches of grace. So Paul came not with a fancy message, but with an infinitely valuable message validated by the miracles of God. So that your faith, and I did this, I didn't, I didn't come with my ingenious word crafting, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith is in the power of God. And this is what they've done in Corinth, and this is the context. He's already told them in chapter 1. You're dividing over who's your teacher. You're worried about the men. But the reality is that we're worshiping God So the men have their purpose. God uses proxies. He uses people. He uses you. He's got a mission for you to accomplish, and he doesn't do it directly. He works through you to do it. And that's that's the whole story. That's your life. But it's not about you. It's not about the people he uses. It's about God. And they've missed it. So now we go from, what do we say, from context to, what was the second one? I don't even remember my sermon points. From context to correction in 2, 6 through 13. And this is a beautiful thing. The correction is actually going to be the doctrinal section. It's going to be the part that we learn what wisdom really is. And it's in 2, 6 through 13. Yet we do speak in contrast to what we didn't come with words of wisdom. We do speak wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world, but we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Those who get it, who understand what we're doing. The mature. This is going to be tantamount to the spiritual, it turns out. There is a maturity in what Paul describes as spiritual because he's going to talk about carnal and just acting like babies. Spiritual babies, but there's the mature. Those that understand what we have to say. Now, he's not questioning that they're believers. He's established it several different ways already, and he'll say it several more ways through the letter. He's talking only to Christians. Only to those who have trusted in Christ. But they're acting like unbelievers because they're babies spiritually. They're living according to the flesh. And that means spiritual infancy. American Christendom. Spiritual infancy. I won't think and I won't pay attention to what God said. I'll live my life as though my feelings are the truth. I'll live my life as though my feelings are God's word. And that's the problem. There's a super highway between my feelings and my sin nature. And it doesn't mean all my feelings are sinful, but it does mean that I in my flesh am not going to arrive at truth from within. It's going to be from God's word and wait for the feelings he gives you of joy, of contentment in him as you trust him and you make that choice. It's a thought game, but it isn't only thought. It gives forth in joy. 
We speak wisdom among the mature, or wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak wisdom in God, uh, the wisdom, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, that which couldn't be known by the world, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. See, Paul is saying the great thing that we have to offer is revelation from God. It's mystery. You can't get it from another source. It's branded. It's Christian. It's from Christ. And how do you get it from Christ? He, didn't ever, he never wrote anything. You have it from Christ and his apostles, those that he sent. And so we're apostolic. We listen to Peter and the other 11 and Paul. And we don't have anything that Matthias ever said or wrote that we know of. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's this wisdom? It's personal relationship with God through his son. The gospel, Christ and him crucified. It's a personal relationship with God through his son. If the world had known this, they wouldn't have crucified him. They would have said, he's the Lord. He's God in the flesh. He's the one that came to save us from our sins. But I'm not touching the hammer and the nails. Because they, would, they wouldn't have crucified him because they knew who he was. And the mystery is, who is Jesus and what does that mean for us? But as it is written, things which eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that... God is prepared for those who love him. That's Isaiah chapter 64. All that God has prepared. I love that quote. That's one of my favorite things that ever said in scripture. Because I'm so stuck in a material frame and I can only see what I can see. And I've been lied to all my life in this culture. And so have you that all there is is all that you can see. And all that you can really know is what you can see and observe. And we've, we've given this overabundance of, of, of trust, of faith and bacon and, and this empiricism. That if I can see it, I know it. If I can't see it, I don't know it. Good luck with that, Madame Curie. She died of radiation poisoning or cancer or whatever it was. The effects of radiation because of what she couldn't see. But it was in a material frame. It was, it was radioactive materials. There's a lot more to this world than what you can see. And I just made an example from the material world. What about that which isn't material? Oh, I can't talk about that. Everything's material. Except that you love one another. Except that you feel a sense of conscience. Well, that's just explained by chemicals. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. The moral argument, as um, C.S. Lewis begins Mere Christianity, the moral argument, the argument from we all have a sense of should and ought. We all like to talk about it. Even people who, who should or not is directly opposed to mine. They're very keen and morally committed, almost with a religious froth at the mouth kind of fervor to have their moral stance carry the day. And, and, and cancel culture is all about a form of morality. What am I saying? I'm saying it's not just material. There is the inner you. And we all live in it. We all know it. And this is why I love Isaiah 64. Things which eye hasn't seen or ear hasn't heard. There's no empirical basis for this mystery from God, which haven't entered in the heart of man. You can't reason it. You can't sit in an oven and say, well, you know, at least I'm thinking. I know I exist because I know I'm thinking. So cogito ergo sum, I know that I exist because if I think, I think therefore I am. And there we are off to the races with Descartes and, uh, and rationalism. And it hasn't entered into the heart of man. What we're talking about here. These aren't things you can get from yourself or from your reason, your magnificent powers of observation. 
We're fearfully and wonderfully made to live under a creator who made us and made everything around us, and it is all evidence pointing at him and we can't see him. All that God has prepared for those who love him. What have you prepared for those who love him? The mystery, the eternal life, the knowledge of God that you can't see. You're not going to hear his voice audibly. Almost nobody in world history has. Just a few people here and there. And yet he's speaking. Psalm 19 says all of creation is shouting at you. So then you go to his word and it's holy and pure and good and lovely. And that's how you know him. But then verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. What Paul is saying, notice in context is, you're not, I'm not coming to you with a thought that I have that I'm crafting together to sell you on something so you'll think I'm impressive. I was given revelation from God and prophetically I'm giving it to you. And that's what this is. And it's from the Spirit of God. And this is a wonderful statement of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the things that the apostles taught and through their scriptures are now teaching. Because if you want to know God that you can't see and you can't reason to and you can't get there on your own, you need this, the one who knows the deep things of God to tell them to you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. That's the worldview, the attitudes, the zeitgeist of the time, the spirit. Spirits used three ways in this passage. We haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who or which is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. There, in this phrase in Greek, I could show you, but not today. This section right here, the spirit which is from God, is a unique statement in the New Testament. The, the spirit that is out from God. It is cavalierly translated the spirit of God meaning the Holy Spirit, because all through the context, he's been saying the Holy Spirit. And I am not going to fight with you if you think it, this one means the Holy Spirit too, but the Spirit which is from God very likely is talking about the new you, the new capacity that God has given you to know him. But I want you to see something. Everyone translates this with a capital S because it's hard to distinguish the work of the Holy Spirit in me, the third person of the Trinity, and my new spirit. They're not the same. I'm not God. I have a new spirit, but the spirit of God lives in me. And that's something I want to show you about Christian experience. You're not supposed to bifurcate this and say, well, you know, um, this thought that I was having that wasn't sinful was just me, my spirit. But this other thought that was this great idea, that was the Holy Spirit. I don't think we're supposed to live like that. You're not supposed to bifurcate your life from the, the impact of the Holy Spirit on your human spirit. You are to be a product of the things of God and your machinery that God made, the immaterial you works perfectly to do that in God's power, according to God's word. So I'm trying to show you something that, you know, some of you are um, fading on me. Imagine everyone is putting squash in their coffee right now. It's the strangest thing in the world. Pumpkin coffee. It's fantastic. Squash in the coffee? Do they, do they put... Do they put the seeds? Can you imagine someone 150 years ago coming? The best thing in the world is the pumpkin coffee. You're squashing the coffee. What is, what is that? It's fantastic. But it's because of all the stuff you put in the squash to make it pie. You back with me? All right. So <laughs> the spirit, which is from God, 
The spirit which is from God is probably, I think, the human spirit, the new you, with new capacity, but always empowered by the spirit who is God, the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just showing you there's a nuance in this verse. And this is so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. You know the things of God because you have special capacity, the spirit from God. I can show you why that's true of the Holy Spirit in you and also of your new spirit. But here's an interesting suggestion about this. I think all people who have believed in Christ through the ages, all those looking forward to the Messiah before he came and all those in our time like looking back at the Messiah in the gospel, it's always been the promise of God's salvation through the seed of the woman. There's always this expectation of Israel's Messiah. All the Levitical offerings and seasons and, and, and festivals point to this Savior. I believe that those who trusted in God through the Son and became believers, I think they were always made new. I think they've always been regenerate and always able to receive the things of God. In other words, I don't think the Old Testament saints didn't have access to the special revelation of the prophets. I think most of the Israelites rejected it because that's what we have. Jesus says, to whom uh, of uh, which of the prophets that my father sent to your fathers did they not kill the prophets have always been rejected by the majority, but there's always been a remnant. And I believe this regenerate remnant had the spirit that's from God. I don't think they had the Holy Spirit because we're told that the Holy Spirit wasn't yet given because Christ wasn't yet glorified, again in John chapter 7. But my point is that I think there was always access to the Word, and that access is this new creation, your new spirit in Christ. And so that you may know the things, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak... We're speaking, we apostles are speaking these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. My Bible interprets spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, spiritual words with spiritual persons. Spiritual with spiritual is the Holy Spirit worth your human spirit. There's a combination that God is making. And this is why if you don't know Christ, what I'm saying means nothing to you. If you do know Christ, and what I'm saying means nothing to you, it's because this is meat, and you're not able to eat it. And that's not a judgment, that's not a criticism, that's a fact. And I'm not everybody's pastor, I want to be, but actually Jesus is the great shepherd, he's the pastor. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 1-3. through so Paul is correcting them with this idea of what is this revelation I've got? What am I giving? And you, you have this capacity to know the things of God. And now the comparison or the contrast between the spiritual man, the, the one walking by the Spirit as a believer, and the unbeliever. A natural man, this word natural in my uh, New American Standard, um, I'm not sure what your King James says. It might say natural. Natural man. Okay, so we continued to mistranslate um, in 1995, 1978, 1960 with the New American Standard, continue the mistranslation of Sukikos uh, from the 1611. And I say mistranslation because nature, that is, that is a major theological assumption that Sukikos means natural. Not from nature? What is nature? Is it the forest and the trees and the birds and the bees? Is that nature? What, what is nature? Is it your sinful nature? That's kind of what they're suggesting. What I'm trying to show you is this word is not hard for us. We have psychosis. We have psychology. 
We have all kinds of words that use the soul. The word for soul in Greek is suke. And it's the suke kos. It's the man described by soul. Better translated, if you really want to bring it into English in an actual literal translation, you would say soulish. The soulish man. I, can't, I just can't learn something like that. It's too complicated. My pastor taught me this when I was like seven or eight. That the, that the unbeliever is soulish, not spiritual. He doesn't have the spirit from God. He's just characterized by soul. Sukikos, that's this word natural. He doesn't accept, welcome, desire, embrace. He doesn't want them. He doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. And in some cases, my horror, to my great horror, these words are being fulfilled in your hearing, as Jesus said in the synagogue. You're, you're hearing that it's foolishness to you because you don't have the Spirit of God. But if you do, rejoice. And if you don't, trust in Christ as your Savior. That's the only way you can have the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. The access that God wanted his people to have to his word has always been available. And it is available to you right now, but it's God's way. It's God's protocol. It's God's system. You don't define how we come to the word. God defines it, and you learn to read or not. It's great. Oh, it's so great. You don't have to invent anything. Just fit into the container God has provided, and you'll be exactly what he wants you to be. And that's what the word of God does. These things are spiritually appraised, and the natural man can't accept them or understand them. But he who is spiritual, characterized by spirit, pneumaticos, he who is spiritual appraises all things, but is himself appraised by no one. Why? Because you're at the base concept. You're at God. You're with him, and you're knowing him on his terms. So it doesn't matter what anyone else says about that. They speak into it or try try to really unpack that and see if there's a better way. There is no better way. There's knowing God through his word and there's no appraisal. There's no criticism. There's no way to, um, to super, superordinate over that I know God through what he said. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? <laughs> who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Isaiah 49. It's like, it's like Paul likes Isaiah as much as I do, probably more. By the way, on Wednesday nights, we're studying the book of Isaiah. We just finished chapter 22. And uh, what a magnificent study. If you know anything about Isaiah, that means that you still got time. It really starts to get really exciting and rejoicing uh, right about chapter 40. So, uh, y'all, come on. We'll do Isaiah verse by verse on Wednesdays. We have the mind of Christ. And now the conviction. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual Pneumaticos, people characterized by the Spirit of God in your human spirit, but as to men of flesh, that's the word carnal, that's the word sarkos, sarkikos, characterized by flesh. So you've got three things. You've got the spiritual man, you've got the carnal man, and you've got the soulish man. And, and this is easy to resolve. You're carnal because you're characterized by your flesh. You're spiritual because you're characterized by the Spirit of God. That's spiritual and carnal. The soulish man doesn't have the spirit. He has to be carnal. He has no access to the things of God. But here's the shocker. If you are acting as Christians in carnality, you're babies. There's a maturity factor. Boy, does Paul, he doesn't really know how to be very politic with these people. This is offensive. We're going to cancel him. We're going to have to suspend his Twitter account 
for, for calling us babies in Christ. We don't want to hear that. This is no way to win friends and influence people, beloved. If you're already on the outs with them and they won't listen to you, is this the way you would go about correcting them? Apparently. That's how God inspired Paul to do it. And it's, oh, it's wonderful to me. I need this every day. I don't want to walk after the flesh. I want to walk according to the spirit, according to the things of God. I gave you milk to drink, galactos, milk, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it even, even indeed now you're not even able. By the way, what we just went through in Greek, this theological concept from the original language is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. I've worked on it for year, I've worked on it for 20 years. Worked on it when I was in seminary all through. I worked on it in my master's uh, research paper, unpublished, never to be published. Um, <laughs> I've been working on it all my life. You're not even able now to receive these things, for you're still carnal. You're still characterized by the sinful nature. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? This is where he says the carnal believer is acting like an unbeliever, a mere man, just a human. Without the Spirit of God is what he's saying. Without the new spirit and the Spirit from God, that's, that's, what you're, that's how you're behaving. See the conviction? Now, here's what humility does with this. Humility says, God, fix me. This is me. I see it. Thank you for the correction. It hurts. But the blows, the strikes, the wounds of a friend are, are a joy. They're, they're a blessing. So I'll take it. Thank you for the correction. And I'll make the adjustment. I'll humble myself before God despite this tendency I have to, to well up in pride. And I'll, I'll supplant that with the things of God and say, God, work in me. Or you'll bow up in arrogance and say, who, do, who does he think he is to say this to me? Or well, this is Paul, and this is bound in our Bibles. We know it's the Holy Word, and it's the Bible, so it must be right, so it can't be about me. And we'll dodge. We'll do some Karate Kid, too. And dodge the, uh, whatever that thing was, the, the, the giant meat axe or whatever they're training the teenagers with. <laughs> Best way avoid punch, not be there. <laughs> For when one says, I'm a Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not unbelievers? Are you not acting like unbelievers because you're worried about humans instead of the things of God? Paul is saying, you're down here where you don't need to be. I need you to come up here to the things of God and think that way and then deal with your life from that perspective. And we all need that correction. We need that correction every day. We slide into doing this. We're stuck with it. I want to remind you that what Paul just did was he took their eyes off of the things that they could see and the relationships they could have and whether Paulus tucked in his shirt or not. And they, he took them to the things of God, the actual things that really matter. It's a matter of your attention. The apostle Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ. And he is saying what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, the eye is the light of the body. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What are you looking at? Story up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust won't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question of Paul and of Jesus is what are you looking at? They were looking at, in this specific instance, a problem that still plagues us is who's the preacher? What they need to think of is who's the great shepherd? It's Jesus. And they need to praise God for the spiritual gifts God has given us. Everyone has one. 
And the expression of these gifts is a blessing that God has given us and we praise him for it. The Holy Spirit is not competing with himself. And when we fall into that, we're just acting like unbelievers. Not for you and me, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we close this morning with words of life, offer uh, by you through your son to any who are hearing that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And it's our prayer for our loved ones, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our colleagues, Father, our employers, our employees, those in our periphery for the mail letter carrier, the UPS man, man that comes and gets the trash on Wednesday, Father. In every case, we pray for their eternal life. We believe that you personally had them in mind from eternity past, that Jesus paid for their sins, all of them on the cross, and that they need to come to know Jesus Christ through the gospel message and so know you through your son. That's our prayer that you would make the arrangement. Father, there are many reasons why we reject or why human beings are struggling with the gospel. We wonder about all those who haven't believed. It's a horrible thing to consider. And it sends us to the mission field, all those who have not the Christ. Father, you have this in mind. You have this in, well in hand and you know your own. And so we ask for you to break through, to work in the hearts of our loved ones. Help them understand your great love for them and their great need. Father, give us wisdom as spokesmen and women, those who will share Jesus Christ this week. Give us wisdom to say the words of life in kindness and grace and love, to speak the truth in love, the greatest truth that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And teach us to love one another as we should. Don't let us leave today, Father, thinking as carnal. Let us be spiritual, just as Paul has challenged the Corinthians. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, amen.